So we're going to continue our, uh, our journey together, our, our study together through the book of Romans. We're up to chapter 2 now. Romans is about the gospel, the good news. And that's the translation of that word gospel. It really means good news. Um, the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the work that God has done for us that we might be found, that we might be rescued, that we might be saved, uh, that we might find ourselves somehow out of the reality of death now and into eternity and into the reality of life eternal in an eternal love relationship with the living God who has made us and has made us for himself. How this is accomplished, the essence of what this is all about is, is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what God has done for us. Paul, um, at the beginning of his monumental letter of Romans, and, and, the, and Romans is a, is a, it's a tremendous gift. It is where Paul the Apostle, inspired by God, the guy who wrote like a third of the New Testament, it's where he really develops this um, reality of the gospel, the truths of the gospel. He develops it more than anywhere else in his writings. It's still a letter. It's still an occasional letter written for a particular purpose to a particular group of people. But at this time, uh, circumstances being what they were for Paul, he writes a much more um, full expression of the gospel than we find in his other letters. Uh, he, he follows things out. He's going to explain the gospel and, and follow out questions along the way more than he does in his other letters. So it, it's a longer book, a longer letter. But it is about the gospel. And as he begins, he gives his theme statement saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man will live by faith. There's the theme statement for the whole book of Romans. It's about the gospel. He says that he's not ashamed of this gospel, which sort of indicates that there is a natural tendency for people, religious people included, church people included, to be ashamed of the gospel. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's the power of God for salvation. The gospel, the good news of Jesus changes people, but it only p changes people who need to be changed. Who is that? Paul states his theme in, and then goes right into the bad news. Bad news that is really important to set up the good news. It's as though Paul, before he gets into the gospel, explaining the gospel, following out the, the, the amazing truths that attach to the gospel, exploring various questions related to the gospel along the way. Before he gets into that, he's, gonna, he's going to set it up in a way that helps us to understand that there's a dynamic here. This is not just a sharing of information. It's, it's not about just knowing some things that you didn't know before. It is about having your life changed. That's what Paul is writing about. And so before he gets into explaining the gospel, he's going to do his best, he who has ears, let him hear, to to make sure that people understand that the gospel is for them. That what Paul is going to be telling us about in the rest of the letter is something that is vitally significant, vitally important to every single human being, everywhere and at all times. 
It's sort of like, it's sort of like, uh, you know, uh, good news is, is like good medicine. <laughs> it doesn't do a whole lot of good unless you take it. Uh, knowing what all the right medicines are for whatever condition ails you is nice. Uh, but if you're not taking any of those medicines, it's not going to do a whole lot of good. Kind of like that. Last week, he talked about the wrath of God. We, we explored the wrath of God from the end of chapter 1. Paul says it is being revealed. The wrath of God is being revealed against all the um, un, ungodliness and uh, wickedness of men who suppress the truth. It's being revealed and it's being poured out or stored up. This is brilliant, inspired. Paul, as God's instrument, is not interested in expanding people's knowledge about the work of God on earth. He is interested in changing people. What's the point in presenting a wonderful divine plan for changing people who don't need to be changed? Saving people who aren't in peril, don't need to be saved. This week we're going to continue talking a little more and and specifically about some of the objects of God's wrath. So let me ask again, who is it that needs to be changed? Let me offer a personal confession. I've done a lot of bad things in my life. And honestly, I'm pretty sure I'm not done. But here is perhaps the most God-forsaken thing I do. I try to appear as though I'm really a good person. The kind of man Jesus is really happy to have on his side. One way I do this is to keep the positive image of myself propped up before you and before others. Which means keeping quiet about my inner struggles and covering up my outer failures. It's a tough job. And I imagine most of you who know me or have known me for more than about five minutes know that I'm not doing it perfectly well. (laughs) But I keep trying. And it is a God-forsaken endeavor that I am about. Another way to do this is to assume a position of judgment over other people and their struggles and failures. Sure, nobody's perfect. Yeah, I've done some bad things, but hey, not nearly as bad as what he's done. Newspapers and magazines can come in handy along these lines, reading about despicable things that other people have done that I would never do. This is counterproductive. Let me offer a corporate confession. The church has done a lot of bad things through history. But maybe the worst is to project ourselves as the good people of the community. And I've heard it said, and I don't know that it's too far from from truth, that we Presbyterians are particularly bad at this. I remember a story. I've shared it with you before. This guy told me 
came in my office, sat down, and told me that he'd grown up in a little town in California where there was a Presbyterian church. He and his family were the wrong kind of people. They were, they were poor. Uh, they had all kinds of really bad habits, most of which, many, much of which everybody in the community knew about. They were the so-and-so family, and people knew who they were. And they were not the kind of people you wanted your kids to play with. Um, and he knew it. He was the wrong kind of person. And he shared with me, having come back to the church much later in life, he was an older man, and he, he told me that as a kid, it was his dream that one day he could actually go to the Presbyterian church in town. Because the one thing that he knew for sure was that he did not belong there. But he longed in his mind to be able to belong there. I mean, the Presbyterian church was where the, the people came and went who were the upstanding citizens of the community, the kind of people that others wanted to emulate. The, their, their parking lot was full of the kind of cars that he knew his family would never own. And they seemed to get new ones all the time. It was a place where people were dressed like really good people are supposed to dress and that he knew he would never have the wherewithal to dress like that. It broke my heart when he told me this story. What an indictment on how the church projects itself, how church people oftentimes present themselves. Why do we work so hard once we become Christians and join an American church to appear as though we are now the kind of people Jesus wouldn't have to die for? And I'm not talking about trying hard to do what is right, to obey God's word, to fight sin and evil. That stuff is just smart. I'm talking about trying to project an image we know isn't true, which then gives other people the wrong impression and actually prevents us from ever confessing and repenting in any meaningful way. Both in terms of of our witness and our effectiveness in being God's agent to help people change for the better by his power, those that are outside of us, our witness to them, but also in terms of our own health. People who, who would confess sin in a general sense, but, but never get specific. Cause I don't want people to know about that and I want people to think I'm better than that. This is counterproductive. So then we come to Romans 2. It's an interesting section of scripture. I really like it. I don't like what it says. It it hurts. But I like what's happening here. You see, at the end of chapter 1, Paul has started this painting this picture, and he, and he spends a lot of time doing it. It's going to go all the way into chapter 3. Painting the picture that tells us everybody stands in need before God. Everyone needs this good news of the gospel. Everyone needs the grace of God. Every single person. Being religious, if you take a look at history, being religious 
doesn't put you in a category where you don't need this stuff. Everyone needs it. And Paul is going to try to tell us this. And at the end of chapter 1, he's gone after kind of the low-hanging fruit, speaking as a a Jewish man. Uh, He's going after what would be seen as pagan sort of sins. People that do really wrong things, that turn away from God, that that involve themselves in despicable practice. Um, Idolatries of all kinds, lusts of all kinds. And, And he goes after them. And it's sort of like, you, you sort of imagine Paul with his theological truth gun blazing away, bam, 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 and he's, and he's, just, he's just riddling pagans with these hard truths from God. Bam, bam, bam. Look at the way they live. That's terrible. That's, and God's, God's wrath is coming. And you sort of imagine his, his religious friends, the Jews, nowadays Christians, kind of standing behind him saying, attaboy, Paul. Yes, sirree, you go get those filthy pagan Gentile types. Oh, yeah, you, you let them have it for all those terrible things that they do. But then, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul turns his guns back on them. Which probably what didn't please them quite as well. And he turns it back on them in part because there they are sort of cheering as he's letting other people have it. Truth! but a truth that they sort of feel that they are above, beyond. And then he turns the guns back on them. And here's what he says in chapter 2. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to speak to us loud and clear. 
about what the real problems are and about how they are our problems. About what the real solution that you're pointing to is. And it is our solution. And it is a solution for every person. Lord, I pray that, that you would use this challenging text to remind us of the grace in which we stand and that we absolutely need every day. And then help us to be those who walk and minister and share in this grace. Lord, it's a tough thing for us to do. But nothing is too difficult for you. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So every year for the last 35 years or so, my family goes on a vacation. It's become a tradition for us. Almost every year we've done this since our oldest child was a baby. We go on a houseboat. We rent a houseboat for a week and we hang out on a lake and we do boating stuff and skiing stuff and lake stuff, swimming, tubes. It's fun. But I, I want to tell you about the place that we go. We go to the same lake every year. It's called Trinity Lake. We're a very religious family. <laughs> Sorry. That's an accident, but it's a beautiful lake up in Northern California, kind of west of Redding, up the hill. Um, we go to Trinity Lake. And I want to tell you about the, the Trinity Lake area. A little geography lesson for this area of, of uh, that's called the Trinity Alps. Um, there's, there's a, as you're driving to, to the lake we go to, you go past Lewiston Lake. Lewiston Lake is this long, thin lake that really looks like just kind of a wide river, which I guess it really is because there's a river that flows through there. Um, but uh, so Lewiston Lake is long and flat. There's fishing boats on it. And about, what, two or 300 feet above Lewiston Lake is Trinity Lake. And Trinity Lake is much bigger. It's huge. Goes for miles and miles. Little fingers of, of water that you can explore in your boats, and we do. It just goes for miles in a bunch of different directions, up about two or 300 feet above Lewiston Lake. In between these two lakes is a huge dam, strong and high. And I think this offers an image for us related to this revelation of wrath that we have in Romans. The lower area, the Lewiston Lake area, is where we live. Up above is where the triune God is storing up his wrath against sinful humanity. Huge area. In between, a dam. Crumbling because it is designed to be temporary. Call it the patience of the sovereign God or the optimistic ignorance of humankind. There's a frightening amount of wrath and the waters are rising up there in the higher lake. It must be poured out somewhere else or we're in terrible trouble. And the dam is crumbling. And the warning signs are posted all around the lower area where we live. Signs like Romans 1 and 2 in God's word. 
because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So what happens to you and me when the dam bursts? Will the waters of wrath have been poured out already for us? It strikes me that there are three responses that we can have in general to Paul's word on sin and truth and wrath here. And then you can follow along in your bulletin insert at this point if you want. The first is what I'm calling the response of rejection. This is a bad response. It's about this foolish presumption. Sin in general, or my culture's favorites, or my own select list, aren't really that bad. This is about disagreeing with Paul's condemnation of sin. This is about the folks that would read, and some do, Romans chapters 1 and 2, and say, bah humbug. That's, that's old, manipulative, religious junk. People are good. We're fine. It's all going well. I would add my own little parentheses and a little footnote, despite all evidence to the contrary. This is what religious people do, all these negative people. Talk about things like sin. They're disagreeing with Paul's condemnation of sin. It's a, this is about ignorance. Closing our eyes to the revelation. Eventually, if we hold these silly views, we will be corrected. God is correcting us. His wrath is being revealed. Not just in the Bible. In newspapers. On the internet. Why? So we whom the Father loves will cooperate with his will for us and allow him to change us, to save us. As I, as I mentioned last week, God's wrath is actually good. It is a, a heavenly father who is not willing to sit idly by to function as a codependent as we go on our merry way toward death and destruction, toward, toward things that are harmful for us. God actually is going to throw stuff at us to make it more difficult to go the way that's going to kill us. You can call that God's wrath. It is an expression of God's mercy and goodness and love. It doesn't feel that way much of the time. Then there's the response of rejoicing. And if the rejection response was bad, this one is worse. This is about the monstrous presumption that goes something like this. The sin of others will be punished as they deserve and as I don't. This is to agree with Paul's condemnation of sin. In others. Maybe actually even enjoying it. You know that group standing behind Paul as he is outlining these sins of pagan culture. 
Attaboy, Paul, let him have it. Take that, you pagans, you Gentiles, you law-breaking, low-life scum, you people so unlike me. That's why I put, without comment other than this, why I put that little story of Jesus, the parable of Jesus about the two men praying in the temple. The one who, who prays, Lord, thank you so much that I'm not like other guys, like that guy over there, but I'm the upstanding me. And then the other man beats his breast and says, Lord, forgive me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus says, one of the two went away justified. Let them have it, Paul. They deserve it. You and I know that very well. See, this is about pride. Denying the storing up for ourselves. Because it is for bad people. And that's not us. Pride is what C.S. Lewis calls the great sin. It's a chapter in his book called Mere Christianity, that wonderful apologetic work. The great sin. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride, Lewis writes. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. The more pride you have, the more you recognize and hate it in others. Pride is essentially competitive. Unlike other sins, it's not enough to be attractive. You must be the most attractive. It's no good to be wealthy. You must be the wealthiest. Pride, unlike most other sins, doesn't come from the devil working on us through our animal nature. Lewis says, instead, pride is purely spiritual, coming directly from hell, and thus it is more subtle and more deadly. Pride has a blinding power over us. A person can be a churchgoer, one who appears to be a very religious person, doing good works, calling Jesus Lord, Lord with their lips and still be under the control of pride. How can this be? Lewis again. I am afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. And any of us may at any moment be in this death trap. Luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether, or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. In the end, human pride will come face to face with the living God. And this is where the deepest decision of our souls is revealed. Either we will let our selfish pride die, or we ourselves will be put to death eternally. 
A last quote from Mere Christianity and Lewis. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Romans 2 can help us with this greater problem of pride. Verse 1, At whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Oh, maybe not the same way. We may not do the same sinful things that we see others do the same way that they do them, but rest assured, we do the same sort of things from God's point of view. That's bad. Our judgments against others tend toward hypocrisy. Verse 2, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Here's something that's worse. Our judgments do not tend to be based on truth, as God's are. And so they actually turn into additional reasons for God's wrath against us. Verse 4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? This is worst of all. Our monstrous presumption to see God's wrath as something for people unlike us leads us to miss the point. God's grace is for me because I need it. So finally, we have the response of repentance. And this is the response that is right and good. It's based on this redemptive presumption. I need what Jesus alone gives. I need what the good news of the gospel is all about. I am not ashamed of the gospel for me. This is about wisdom and the grace of heavenly insight. Opening our eyes to the revelation of wrath. Agreeing with Paul's condemnation of sin. My sin. This is about proper and wise humility. Acknowledging the truth of our tendency toward all of the monstrous presumptions of human pride and continually asking for God to help us kill it before it kills us. Asking forgiveness from God and from others for our presumptuous faults and wrath-deserving judgment against them. Letting God be the only real, true, and final judge. Accepting the pouring out of God's wrath upon Jesus for me. Because I needed him to do that. Or else I was without hope and would be separated from life forever.
And so this is part of God's process of transforming us, ironically, beautifully, wondrously, into truly good people. Doing good works for his honor and not for ours. Avoiding evil, like presuming to be the great judges of other people, not to earn points with God, but to give him glory. To walk with him, to cooperate with him in the way of life and goodness and truth. Sure, telling the truth, sharing what God has revealed to us is right and good for all of us, Sharing the truth of things that are right and things that are wrong based on God's revelation, absolutely, but doing it always in a spirit of humility and an understanding that we are all moving in a place of grace or we're not moving at all. That whatever it is we're commending to others is something for us as well and needed by us as well. To share truth with others, never, because we're right, and we know something that other people don't know, never, as a way of expressing that we are somehow better than others, because we've got this insight. But always sharing truth with others, sometimes hard truths, Simply because we, like God, and as those who have been drawn in by God into his grace and mercy and life, are not willing to stand by while people whom we choose to love are harmed. It's hard for us. Very hard for us but nothing is too difficult for God. God is helping us through this revelation of wrath and the need for forgiveness. He's helping us to become the good people that he wants us to be. People sharing and praising in his goodness. Giving God thanks that we do our work live our lives, worship him here in a place of eternal safety by his grace and through our faith in him. For when the day of judgment comes, when the dam breaks, and it will, the waters of wrath will not fall upon us because they have already been poured out on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, again, we thank you for all the ways that you have blessed us. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's not easy. It is challenging. And it challenges us at points that we... we like to just rest and coast. Like, I thought we were doing well by being good religious people and showing up at church and helping with programs and giving some money and, and saying the right things 
on occasion about you. And now we hear that that it's not enough. We, we, we can't work our way in. And in fact, we even have to guard against those very things that might lead us to some kind of goofy religious pride. Wanting to take pride in ourselves for what we do for you and what we know by you. Instead of falling to our knees and giving you thanks and praise that you have helped us to this place where we can experience this much life and truth and joy and peace. And then we actually have the opportunity to, to let it drip off of us and onto others. But Lord, all the while, you are good and you are true and you are holy and you are gracious and you are with us. And when we fall, you help us get back up. And when we head the wrong direction, you're there to help us get back on track. And by your power, we do. May we do so also only to your glory. And may we be about this work in our lives even now, even here. That you would be honored and glorified, that others would be rescued, and that we would experience the joy of partnering with you for things that matter. And we pray all these things in your name and for your sake.